before Pat jumps in here, let me say a couple things about this, um, which I didn't tell her I was going to do. <laughs> um, this summer, we're going to be reading from the prophetic literature in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. Um, the prophets of Israel were not only superheroes, <laughs> but they acted as spokespersons for God. Um, rather than telling the future, these men and women were astute observers of, the of their times who saw God's hand at work in the people and events of their day. With words and actions, they sought to turn their people's hearts to God by speaking truth to power, crying out against injustice, and proclaiming the sovereignty of God. Elijah was active, as you heard, during the reign of one of the most notorious royal couples in Israel's history. Um, his first confrontation with Ahab is recorded in 1 Kings 17, and you might be interested to go back and read more about his story. And in that chapter, he declares to Ahab that there will be neither dew nor rain in these, these years except by my word. And what happens is there's a three-year drought after that. Um, during that time, as the story goes, he lives first by a river bank where God sends ravens to feed him, and then in the home of a widow of Zarephath in Sidon, whose hospitality is rewarded with the miracle of a jug of meal and a jar of oil, which are never depleted, and ultimately by Elijah restoring the life of her son. After his triumph over the prophets of Baal, which you've just heard about, um, which actually ends with their deaths at Elijah's hands, um, the drought comes to an end. But Elijah's victory is short-lived. And in today's scripture passage, we will see a very different man from the larger-than-life figure that Ahab called a troubler of Egypt, Israel, and the one who called the people back to God. So let's listen as Pat reads. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of, of one of those at this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, 
thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in places before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall appoint Hazal as king of Aram. Also you shall anoint Jeru, son of Nehemshai, as the king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elijah, son of Shehar, as Abel Mothiah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazal, Jerah shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jerah, Isaiah shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When Ahab tells his queen about Elijah's victory over the prophets of Baal, Jezebel responds by sending a messenger to Elijah with a death threat. Given the strength and the cocksure attitude with which Elijah confronted an army of Baal's prophets, one might expect him to respond to Jessica's, excuse me, Jezebel's threat in kind. Instead, we are told that he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life. Apparently, Elijah took Jezebel more seriously than he did her husband. Fearful and dejected, Elijah runs as far as he can until exhausted he collapses under a solitary shrub in the middle of the Judean wilderness. Physically and emotionally spent, he cries out to God, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Everything that Elijah has accomplished seems as nothing to him, and he is ready for God rather than Jezebel to take his life. If you have ever felt so discouraged, so alone, so afraid that you wanted to give up and run away, then you have some idea of how Elijah felt in that moment. It seems, however, that God was not interested in indulging Elijah in his pity party, however. For when he awakens from a troubled sleep, Elijah receives another messenger, an angel who urges him to get up and eat the food and water which God has provided, not just once, but twice. In the strength of that food, Scripture tells us, Elijah travels for the proverbial 40 days and 40 nights, which simply means a very long time, 
to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of Moses, and the place in which God claimed the people of Israel as his own people and gave them the law. Though Elijah does not know it, this mountain will be also the site of a new beginning for him. He takes shelter in a cave on the mountain, and the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response reveals the depth of his despair. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. His anguish distorts Elijah's vision, causing him to see things differently than they truly were. Remember, it's Jezebel, not the people of Israel, who are trying to take his life. But God neither challenges nor Elijah's assessment of his situation nor corrects him. Instead, Elijah is invited to meet God on the mountainside. As Elijah huddles in the caves, there is first a hurricane, hurricane force wind and then a great earthquake, I suspect someone larger than the ones we've been feeling lately, and then a firestorm. And when these wild manifestations of God's power dissipate, all that can be heard is what has been variously described as a still small voice, a gentle whisper, or the sound of sheer silence. It is only then that Elijah dares to venture out of the cave. Again, he is confronted with the question, what are you doing here? But this time, God overrides Elijah's complaint. Go, God tells the prophet, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And then God outlines a series of tasks for Elijah to accomplish, the anointing of two kings, including one to rule in Ahab's place, and the anointing of a man named Elisha as the prophet who will eventually succeed him. Furthermore, God makes it very clear that Elijah is not, in fact, alone. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. In other words, God is telling Elijah, if you think you are done, think again. I still have work for you to do. And God sends Elijah back. What are you doing here? On July 10th, this Wednesday, I will begin my 10th year as the pastor of this congregation. And I find myself asking that very question. When I took renewal leave last year, I was planning to retire in June of 2020, next year. And I so enjoyed that time away that I thought, okay, I'm making the right decision. This is good. And then the United Methodist Special Conference took place in February, and over the space of five days, everything changed. Suddenly, I found myself in the place of Elijah, listening to God's voice, telling him that, telling me that my work was not over, and I felt called to continue in active service for not one more year, but two more years, to help this congregation navigate whatever the future holds for our church. I must admit, though, that after Easter, I felt really burned out, so much so that I didn't know if I could continue. 
And I found myself making lists in my journal, one of the things I love about being a pastor, the things I don't love about being a pastor. And yet, even in moments like that, I think that I'm called to continue to work for God in this space and with all of you. I do recognize now that I will need time for rest and renewal in order to do this, and so I ask your patient understanding when I step away for a day or two each month. But with God's help, I promise to serve with and for you to the best of my ability. Now, having said that, I think that God's question is one that applies not just to prophets and pastors, but to each one of us. So let me ask you this. What are you doing here? How, why are you a part of this congregation? How are you living out your faith in this community? I have no doubt that God has greater plans for you than just warming a seat in a pew on Sunday morning. So again, I ask, what are you doing here? Let me take one step further and ask this, what are we doing here? Why is our 105-year-old congregation still going? What is our task, our purpose for such a time as this in our community, in the United Methodist Church, and in the world? I believe that I speak the truth when I say that our purpose is probably not the same as it was in the past, simply to be a place where people could come and join together in worship and fellowship. The needs of the world and the challenges faced by our church are too great for that. Like Elijah, I think God is calling us to something more, something greater. What are we doing here? A similar question was posed by our bishop, Grant Hygieia, at the recent annual conference. The theme of the conference was, I see a new church. And he's asking all of the churches in the conference to answer this question, what is the new church that we see and that we want to be? What is the new church that we see and that we want to be? Now that's going to require some thinking on our part, and over the next few months we'll be talking about this together and preparing a statement to be presented at our charge conference in the fall. But I think we don't do this just because the bishop asks us. We do it because we need to do it. We need to listen for God's voice, to open our minds and hearts to God's will, and to indeed ask this question, what are we doing here? And as we pray and do that, as we pray and ponder, I think it's also important for us to hold on to a crucial truth revealed in this story, that God is faithful. In the midst of Elijah's despair, and indeed all through Elijah's prophetic career, God responded to his need with sustenance and encouragement and direction. God did not rebuke Elijah for his complaint, but redirected his energy toward the new tasks that God, with which God would entrust him. And God assured Elijah that he was not alone, that there were others who would serve along with him. I think Elijah's story serves as a powerful reminder that even when we are afraid, even when we feel like giving up, even when we feel like there's nothing left for us to do, God does not give up on us. 
and will provide us with all that we need and more to do the work to which we are called. Now, to be sure, that help may not be immediately obvious, but as we know from another story, the story of an itinerant rabbi whose courage and faith led to a cross, the power of God is at work when all seems lost, even in the deep silence of a tomb. And perhaps it is only in our deepest need and our greatest moments of weakness that we, like Elijah, are truly able to hear the voice of God in the silence of our hearts, the voice of one who is always with us. If you hear nothing else from this sermon today or from this scripture today, know that, that God is always with us and that God is always calling us forward and asking us, what are you doing here? May God give us the wisdom, the insight, the understanding to discern that. Amen. Amen.